morning, everybody. Welcome to the Digital Cathedral this morning. We are welcoming you from Houston, Texas. If you have never viewed us or you're not sure who you're watching or what's going on here, I'm Don Keithley. We've been doing this together now for, I guess, maybe three years or so, every Sunday morning, 10 a.m. Central Time. What I want to do this morning, let me give you a little bit of, of uh, heads up on where I want to go for the next three, four weeks, four weeks, actually. I want to stop the bus this morning. Those of you that have been with me a while know that when I stop the bus, what I really mean is I'm stopping the bus so that everybody can jump on board to where we're at and where we're going. Uh, I have a lot of people that come to the Digital Cathedral throughout the week that are new. I get new messages every week. And everybody isn't up to speed with those of you that have stuck with me now for a period of time. So we, we, we stop the bus. I do this every once in a while. I've done it for years. Even as a pastor, I would stop the bus and let everybody jump on board and get in the right seat. So I want to stop, I want to stop the bus this morning and I want to retrace back to uh, the basics of all of the deep teaching that we're, we're moving in on. It seems like continual perpetual revelation. And I just want to do a couple bread and butter messages on grace. Would that be all right? Because grace is the foundation of everything. Everything that we do is by God's grace. You never receive anything by prayer or faith, but what he has first given it to you by grace. So I want to look, I want to explore that a little bit and talk about this grace culture that is emerging all over the world. I want to read a verse of scripture just to get us thinking in the right direction this morning. I want to pick up a verse from Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 2 where Paul said this. Paul said, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 2, he said, Indeed, if you have heard of the dispensation or the stewardship, the management of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. So that's kind of where I'm kicking off this morning. I hope that you have heard of the grace that God has given to me and God has given to many of us at the Digital Cathedral. This message that he's given us, it's not just for us. It's for everyone. It's for you this morning. If you're brand new, this is your first Sunday at the Digital Cathedral. We want you to know that this message of grace is for you. And this is the foundation of everything which we do. What started as a grace trickle about 20 years ago, I guess, sometime in the early uh, 2000s, first, right after the, the turn of the century, 2003, 2004, what started as a, as a drip 20 years ago became a trickle. And that trickle then became a stream, and the stream became a river. Until today, what we're seeing is a grace tsunami. I mean, it's covering the face of the earth like nothing I've ever seen before. And a grace culture is emerging, and I use that word loosely, culture. Because something's very unique about this culture that you and I have, have become part of. It doesn't have any headquarters. There's no superstars. Have you noticed that? You don't find any grace teachers, any grace people that are proclaiming this message flying around the world on a jet airplane, on a, on a private jet. There's just no superstars. There's no platform people that stand out. And there's certainly no boundaries as to lines of geography as to where this is really taking hold. So a culture is beginning. And a culture emerges whenever people have a common set of customs and traditions and codes that they share in common. And I want to talk, I want to talk to you a little bit for a couple of weeks about the culture that's emerging. Uh, in some circles, it's called radical grace. When I first began teaching this 
20 years ago. That's what I called it. I called it radical grace. And people used to question me about that. Maybe you've heard the term, I'm not really familiar what radical grace means. And people would say, well, why do you call it radical grace? Isn't grace grace? <clears throat> Truth is grace is grace. But grace has taken such a beating and has become uh, such a perverted word in its meaning in a church culture, a religious culture. I mean, for example, here in Houston, we have a Presbyterian church that is called Grace Presbyterian. Grace is on the door of many churches. It's no more a grace church than a man in the moon. They believe in predestination, that you are either predestined to heaven or hell based on God's selection. So they believe that God gets great glory when people twist and burn in fire forever. So that's kind of a contorted interpretation of the word grace as Paul used it and as we're going to explore this week and next Sunday morning as well. So it's called radical grace to, to separate it from this mixture message that has become so prevalent in our, our religious circles, our church circles. The word radical comes from the Latin word root, right? And what we're doing with this grace message is we're coming back to the very root, to the foundation, to the basics of Paul's grace revelation, the revelation that he directly received from Jesus and he was commissioned by Jesus to take it straight to the Gentiles. So when we talk about radical grace, we're talking about Paul's message that he received by revelation directly from Jesus that is carried straight to the Gentiles. Radical grace is free of law. It's free of stipulations. It's free of regulations. It's free of conditions. It's free of all of the religion that entrapped us for so many years. And as we get into Paul's message, we find that none of that, None of that was part of what Paul ever taught. Grace becomes this direct deposit. And I like that word direct deposit because I get, I get a, you know, when I used to get a paycheck, I would get it direct deposited every week into my bank account. And I, I didn't do anything. It just would, it just was there. Now, whether I spent it or drew on it was up to me. And I always drew on it because I had, you know, bills and expenses. But it was up to me when and how and if I drew on it. And that's exactly the way that this, this radical grace, this grace that is free from conditions, stipulations, regulations, all of the malarkey that we used to carry as great burdens in religion, free of all that is direct deposited into your life. And you can experience all the freedom you want to experience. Or you can still walk in the old religious bondage that you walked in maybe for 10, 20, 30, 40, some people 50 years before the light ever ever comes on. So there's a culture that is emerging. Religion is still very, very, very much opposed to this message of pure grace, radical grace, hyper grace. And the truth is that the man on the street has never really heard or been exposed to the grace of the gospel or the gospel of grace. Um, people haven't rejected Jesus. I, I find very few people that have rejected Jesus. What I find is that people have rejected one of two things. They've rejected either the message of legalism that they've heard all their life had pushed down their throat, or re they reject the messenger, the guy that's there to manipulate, control you, uh, get you to, to uh, you know, sow into his ministry, finance him with exorbitant amounts of money and, and crazy schemes all the time, send you Jesus junk in the mail if you make a contribution. I find people very offended by that. So it's not that they've rejected Jesus. They've rejected either the polluted message, a message that is not Paul's grace, or they've rejected the messenger, one of the two. 
So a grace culture is emerging. And I, I want to I give you some, some uh, lines of distinction between religion and, and grace. And I'm, just, I'm not going to keep calling it radical grace because, you know, when I talk to you about grace, I'm talking about a good news gospel that is free from law. Paul constantly fought the Judaizers who said, yeah, Jesus is good, but in order to be saved, you have to accept Jesus and be circumcised. That's pretty much the story of religion today. Accept Jesus and keep the rules of our denomination, or our particular church, whatever we feel you need to do in order to retain that good standing, that right standing with God. So let, grace is very offensive to religion. Absolutely no question about it. And I'm gonna take two weeks and talk to you about what this grace message really is. But let me just hit some things of why, why this message is offensive to religion. I'm gonna give you, I'm just gonna give you 10 bullets because this, this is just the introduction to the message. And this is not the, the course, not the meat yet. But I just wanna, I wanna draw some lines of distinction so that you can see why this message is offensive to religion. A grace, a grace culture sees God so good, so, so giving, so benevolent, so, so giving of himself, that it becomes offensive to a religion that is based on rule keeping. A grace message sees God as good. I mean, so good that he pays the guy that shows up at four o'clock the same wage that he does the guy that's worked all day long from eight. Remember the parable of Jesus? It really upsets the guy that's been working, working, working all day when the guy that shows up late gets the same wage. That's how grace is. That's how grace works. It's just an analogy, all right? All right, let me tell let me tell you let me tell you why grace becomes very offensive. I'm going to give you 10 reasons and I'm going to do a David Letterman countdown from 10 9 8 7 6. Number 10 is this. Here's what here's why grace is offensive. Because God loves those that religion thinks doesn't deserve it. In religion, and I'm not going to preach these 10 points cuz I don't have time to do it. Religion feels that yes, God loves you if when but if you meet, and there's always a stipulation to it. Grace says that he loves even those that religion says they don't deserve it. Number nine, he's for people that religion are against. Religion is good, and I want to say more about it, but religion always draws a line of distinction between the haves and the have-nots. The haves are those that have met the conditions, the have-nots are those that haven't met the conditions. So grace comes, and it shows us that the Father loves those who religion feels shouldn't be loved. And he's for those that religion are against. Religion are, they're, they're against people that sin. I mean, they can, they can say we love the sinner but hate the sin, but that's not really what's in the heart. The heart is they see it as one entity. And it comes, it comes through that filter of you, you don't deserve it, and we're actually against you. You're not really welcome in our church. There are certain people groups aren't welcome in most charismatic Pentecostal evangelical churches. They can't hold, they can't hold a position. And it's because they've drawn a line of distinction. So really that kind of fits number eight. He includes those that religion excludes. The Father's love is totally inclusive. The Father's grace is inclusive. It excludes nobody. Religion is an excluser. Grace is an includer. Number seven, he's merciful to those that religion thinks deserves punishment. His mercies are new every morning. 
There, there, there are, I forget how many times in the Psalms it says his mercy endures forever. See, religion doesn't see his mercy enduring forever. Religion sees his mercy as having a limit. If, it, if at most the end of your life, whatever you, wherever you stand with God at the end of your life, religion would teach you that's how far the mercy of God will go. You, there's no mercy for you after death. Yet the Bible says his mercy endures forever. Number six, he's good to those who claim even that God is their enemy. He makes the rain to shine, on, to, to, to fall on the just, the unjust. He makes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He treats everybody the same. He's good to those that even feel that God is their enemy. I've had people tell me over the years, Pastor, if I come to church, you know, I said, I, try, I used to try to get folks from the gym or that I would meet different places. I'd, you know, make sure I'd invite them to church. I'd say, and often they would say something like this, Pastor, if I came to church, a roof would fall in. Do you know why they thought that? Is because church taught them, church really did teach them that God was their enemy, that they were separated from God, that God had no time for them. Number five, he sees humanity holy, righteous, and blameless, even when they don't act like it. He's not, grace is not a behavior modifier. And that's what, that's what religion does. See, he sees humanity as holy, righteous, and blameless, even when they don't live like it. Grace covers that. Grace goes beyond that. That's, he's not, grace doesn't, isn't there to modify your behavior. Grace is there to embrace you exactly like you are. Number four, he believes in us even if we don't believe in him. Number three, he's faithful even when we are unfaithful, or the scripture says that he is faithful even when we are faithless. I mean, that, that's mind-blowing. Religion can never get their head around that. Number two, his grace hyper-abounds where sin abounds. I think it's, gosh, I, I pulled this out of memory. Romans 5.20. This is where, where sin abounds, grace overabounds, or grace, one translation says grace super exceeds. Religion can't handle that. Religion can't handle that. Here's what that verse is saying. On a scale of one to 10, if you sin a six, then grace covers seven. If you sin a nine, grace goes to 10. You cannot out-sin grace. And religion cannot handle that. But that's what the message that Paul taught gives us that grace will superabound, it'll go past any, anything that man does. It has nothing to do with your behavior. It's a gift. It's direct deposited into you. It's the favor of God that is given to us even if we don't merit it, which we don't merit it, but you can't merit it. And number one, this is the number one reason. I think why religion really gets its back up about the message of grace. It's because the Father turned the very height of humanity's murder, humanity's sin, in crucifying Jesus, the Father turned that into the reconciling of the entire cosmos. In, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.19, it says that God was in Christ. He wasn't separated from Christ. He was in Christ during the entire process, reconciling the world to himself. He didn't have to be reconciled to the world. He never left the world. He never put separation between himself and the world. Man put a separation in his mind. So at his worst, at his worst behavior, his, his murderous, you know, pit of what all men, 
mankind did in representation to Jesus by crucifying him. The Father takes that. This is how grace works. He took it and turned it around to the reconciling of all humanity. Come with me to, to uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, verse 37. I, I think you get an idea there why religion has such a problem with grace. It just goes beyond the bounds of what they think is right, what they think is normal, what they think should, should exemplify God's dealings with man. Grace goes way beyond it all. All right, now watch. In, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 and 37, make a little shift here, okay? So stick with me. Verse 36, Jesus said, but I say to you that for every idle word that a man speaks, they will give account of it on the day of judgment. Now, here's what I want you to see. Verse 37, for by your words, you'll be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. Words are important. Now, remember, we're talking about grace culture this morning. Words are important in a culture. Every culture has words and phrases. Every culture has things that are unique to that culture that those outside the culture may not understand. And it's that way in, in, a, in a grace community as well. And that's why I want to take some time to stop the bus. Because I want, I want to give you 10 words uh, between this Sunday and next, I want to give you 10 words that are very unique to the grace culture and how we define them, how we see them, and how that we apply them to the lives of people. The, every culture has terms, every culture has words and phrases that are unique to that culture. That, that explain the priorities of that culture, explain the lifestyle of that culture. Um, sometimes they, they, they show what's different in that culture than other cultures. For example, let me give you a couple of simple examples. In America, for example, we understand, and maybe somebody from China or India would never understand what we meant or what we mean if we say somebody went postal. Now you and I know when somebody goes postal what that means. Somebody in China or India may not know what that means. If we, if we say, let's cut to the chase, a, a guy in another country in Indonesia may not know what the heck you talk about, cut to the chase. Or if we say that thing cost an arm and a leg, <laughs> that's a word that's unique to our culture. We, we know what you're saying when it costs an arm and a leg. It, it was expensive, it, it cost you dearly to get it. Somebody else may not understand, think you're really giving an arm and a leg for that thing? Or if we say close but no cigar. See, we understand what that expression means. Or brownie points. We know what brownie points are. I doubt if a, if a guy in India knows what brownie points are. And in, Christ, and in, in Christianese, in church, we speak Christianese. And we've got phrases in the church, in the religious realm. And if you can think back to all those years you spent in church, and you'd hear things like, I have a burden. People in the world, you got a burden, what are you talking about? Or, or I have a check in my spirit. Really, what we meant by check in my spirit was I don't want to do it, but I'm trying to make it spiritual so I don't have to. Check in my spirit. Or I don't feel led. That, well, that's a big one. I don't want to take on response. I don't feel led to do that. Or that's a divine appointment. How about hedge of protection? People go, hedge of protection, what you talking about? Or I'm prayed up. How about this one? Missionary dating. Missionary dating, you know what missionary dating is? That's a, that's a unique term. <laughs> I'm pulling back now in my days back when I went to a Christian university. Um, Christian dating was this. See, the, the thing in, in, among Christians is you don't date anybody that's not a Christian. You don't marry anybody that's not a Christian. That's, that's what religion calls being unequally yoked. So what, what would happen in college is 
if you were if you were dating a girl I'll just use a guy if you're dating a girl that's not a Christian you could excuse it by saying I'm trying to win her to Christ see that's missionary dating so that's a unique phrase in Christianese maybe just a unique phrase among college students or our young people at least it used to be maybe that's not in vogue anymore I'm not sure but the grace culture has important words that we define and we look at entirely different than religion. We put an entirely different uh, uh, definition, a spin on it, if you will, than what religion will. And so when we talk in our grace culture, that's why I want to stop the bus, because sometimes in a digital cathedral, we use words and expressions and phrases. And if you haven't been around it much, I, it might lose you. You might not know what we're talking about. Therefore, what we're talking about won't open up to you. So I want to give you 10 words between this Sunday morning. I'm going to try to get out five today and five next week that define who we are and what we are as a grace culture. Is it okay if I just do bread and butter for this week and next week? Then two weeks after that, for the next two weeks after that, I want to talk to you about what I feel God is going to be speaking to us in 2021. This is the first Sunday of uh, 2021. And I want to get a little bit forward look. And what I wanted to do the first two weeks is do bread and butter grace. Let's get back to basics. Let's get back to foundations. Let's get back to, to the essentials. Then for two weeks, I want to talk to you about where we're going. What I feel like the Lord is speaking to us that we're going to be learning and discovering in 2021. And some of the, some of the topics I may give you are familiar because we've already planted the seeds and laid the foundation. But I think 2021 is going to be a year we go a lot deeper into some of the things that we have already become acquainted with. So it's essential that if you come to the Digital Cathedral, that once in a while I stop the bus and I let everybody jump on board. So as the cathedral moves forward and we continue our journey, we can all advance together. Fair enough? All right. Word number one. Word number one is this word love. This word love. The gospel of grace is not a solicitation. <laughs> to impress God with our love. When we use the word love in the grace culture, it's the Father's pas passionate declaration of unconditional love for us. Now, we're, we're, in some of the things in grace culture, we flip the script. Fair enough? When we talk about love, we're talking about an unconditional love that has no limitation from the Father to us. It's there's no, no qualifications. It's unqualified. There's no exceptions. There's no restrictions. There's no reservations. Uh, there's no theological fine print that you have to look for the loophole that how he's not going to love you. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. It's unearned love. There's no conditions to it. And this is what separates uh, a grace culture from a religious culture because a religious culture always puts conditions on unconditional love. You may remember that from your church days. God loves you so much if you obey. God loves you so much, but you must follow what he says to do. God loves you so much when you love him. You draw close to him, he'll draw close to you. That's old covenant teaching. Let me show you what, what Paul had to say about this. Ephesians chapter 3. You know, when you come to the Digital Cathedral, we're starting the year. I, I want to challenge you to bring your Bible. There's nobody's Bible that reads like your Bible. And sometimes it's just good to follow along the scriptures. Write them down, make a note of them, and go back and think about them during the week. Look what Paul says about love. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18. 
He said that you may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Now, love, love according to knowledge would have limitations and restrictions on it. Paul says, I want you to get the height, the depth, the width, and the length of this love that he has for you that passes your knowledge. Now, here's why. Now, here's, here's why it's important that we define the word love the way we do, without limitations, without qualifications, without restrictions. Because when we tap into that, and we do it by, by the eyes of the Spirit, we do it by letting him love on us, he says that this opens the door that you will be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I want you to notice in that verse, Paul didn't say, I want you to understand how much you need to love God. I, you, you need to really love the Father more. How many times we said that it back in church days. You know, you just need to love the Father more. Love God with all your heart. But in, in this verse, Paul is really emphasizing, he's flipping the script. And he's saying, look, it's not, it's not your love to him. It's his love to you. Scripture says that we love him because he first loved us. If I can just see, if I can get the love of God into the lives of people, I'll tell you what, it opens up all kinds of dimensions for them. It opens up all kinds of doors for them. God is love. That's the very essence of his being. He can't be anything but that. John said, and this is the only definition I know of in scripture, God is love. Nowhere does the Bible say that God is vengeance or God is wrath. All those words, when you look at them through the lens of love, it changes the definition entirely. You know, his, his wrath is an intense passion. It's an intense desire. And so when he, when he pours out his wrath, it doesn't mean that he's, he's, he's going to beat you with a stick. It means that he, he, he is, has, a, has a deep, intense desire in opposition to anything that would cloud your vision of him and the love that he has for you. Love is the thing that absolutely takes us from religion to revelation. Once the love of the Father gets seated in your heart, I tell you for sure, absolutely, it will open up doors of revelation to you. As long as you have any doubt of the Father's unrestricted, unqualified, no limits, uh, uh, no theological fine print love for you, until you get, until you get convinced of that, and I, I can teach it, but I can't accept it for you. You have to accept it for yourself, and you'll accept it as he shows it to you, as you experience it. Sometimes when you're just first coming into this, you just need to sit down in a chair and just say, Father, thank you for loving me. And just sit there and, and just let him love on you. You don't have to go, you don't have to always be telling him how much you love him. I think we flood ourselves with, I, I need to let him know how much I love him, and hope that he loves me back. That's religion. I gotta tell him how much I'm committed to him so he'll be committed to me. That's religion. Now, I wanna show you a verse of scripture and I wanna show you how looking at it through different lens will uh, affect the way that you see God's love. Fair enough? All right, watch this. John chapter 14, verse 23. John chapter 14 and verse 23. Come back to the left a little bit and let's get over in John. John chapter 14 and verse 23. The Father's love for us is unbelievable, off the chain, off the charts good. It is what makes this grace culture different than a religious culture. 
A religious culture always puts a stipulation on the love of God. A grace culture puts no stipulation whatsoever. So we define the words differently. We take unconditional agape. We take unconditional at face value of no conditions. We don't say he loves you unconditionally based on this condition. Now, let me, let me show you just how looking at different lens affects the way that we live. This 23rd verse of John chapter 14 says this, If anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, let me read the first part of that verse again. You've, you've probably all heard this taught in church. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Now, the way I taught this as a, as a charismatic pastor for years was this. The way that you show the Father, see if this sounds familiar, the way that you show the Father you love him is by obeying his word. If you love him, you're going to keep his word. But now let me tell you what I think John is trying to get across here, what Jesus is getting across. He said, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my commandments. The commandments are not the, the, the point of emphasis here. It's the love. See, and we love him because he first loved us. You'll never love him more than, he, than you sense he loves you. That's the way he built us. We're responders. We respond to his love. And I think the reason people have trouble loving the Father, I know it is, is because they don't sense how much he really loves them. So in a grace culture, we turn, we turn the tables on this, and we don't say, look, you prove your love by doing his word. Very simply is this. When he loves you, you love him back, and you know what the result is? You keep his word. It's a natural happening. And it all depends on the lens that you look at that verse. So you can make it a, a verse of works where you better keep his word, brother, because if you don't keep his word, you're not showing him that you love him. Or you can look at it through the lens of when you love him, automatically you keep his word. That's just the way it works. So it makes a huge difference. All right. Number two. Number two is the word unconditional forgiveness. And I'm not moving as quick with these as I'd hoped I would. Number two is unconditional forgiveness. This, this needs to follow right on the heels of unconditional love. The gospel of grace is not an appeal to engage in soul searching or fault finding. Do you, do you remember how many sermons you heard before where the whole thrust of the sermon was to find something that you were doing in your life that was wrong? that would make you feel guilty, that you, would, that you would search your soul, that you would do introspection to try to find out what was wrong with you. That's not what unconditional forgiveness is. See, unconditional forgiveness is the declaration that you have been completely and eternally forgiven, just like you are. Grace doesn't demand you change anything. It tells you that you are not only unconditionally loved, you are unconditionally forgiven. All right, let's, let's look at a couple of scriptures. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. Right? Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. Watch, you watch this. This stuff gets so good. When you see it through the lens, when you read this through the lens of unconditional love and unconditional forgiveness, it changes your entire world. Now watch what he says in verse 13. He said, in you being dead in trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. All right, in that, in that position, and you being present at, you being in that, that, that position, in your trespasses or in your sins, 
in the uncircumcision of your flesh, following the dictates of the flesh, doing whatever you felt like doing. In that situation, you were jacked up, messed up. All right, in that condition, look what it says. He made you alive together with Christ. He didn't say, you come ask me for forgiveness, I'll forgive you and then I'll make you alive. He didn't say confess all your sins to me and repent and bawl and squall at the altar for an hour and tell me how sorry you are and maybe I'll release forgiveness to you and give you life. No, that's not what it says. This is, what, this is how unconditional forgiveness was. This is what makes a grace culture different. Paul said when you were in the middle of, 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 of your worst day, the middle of your worst time, the more, the more disobedient, the more rebellious you were, if you were the prodigal, in the pig pen, you weren't the, the faithful boy back at the house that always did what the father wanted. On your worst day, in verse 13, he says he made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven you all of your trespasses. Now, I, I don't know what that, what that says to you, but that says to me, man, that I don't have to get uptight. I don't have to worry about if I, if I make a mistake or even willingly do something that I know is wrong. And that, that's what puts people in condemnation. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. And you were placed in Christ before the foundation of the world. There's no condemnation. He's removed the condemnation. In fact, John says in John chapter 1, verse 29, John's standing out there one day and he points at Jesus and he says, right there he is, man. There's the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, not the sin of the Christian, not the, not the sin of the church member. He said, that, that lamb right there, it takes away the sin of the world. You know, if you tra trace the, 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 the sacrifice of a lamb, it started out that there was a sacrifice of a lamb for one life. And then we find in Exodus where there was a, a sacrifice of a lamb for an entire family. Remember that when they, they came out of Egypt, they sacrificed one lamb, covered the doorposts of blood, and they consumed the lamb. That was a lamb for a family. If you follow on, it became a lamb for a nation. But you know what it was now? And this is the way the father planted and slew the lamb before the foundation of the world. It is one lamb, Jesus, for the sin of the entire world. Went from one person to a family to a nation. Now, the consummate, ultimate lamb, is the sacrifice for the entire world. John said later in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says that not, not only is he the atoning sacrifice for your sins, but he's the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. <clears throat> so what are, what are we doing over here confessing all of our sins all of the time? Here's what, here's what a grace culture stands for. Confessing your sins does not change God one iota. He's not looking, he's not waiting for you to confess your sins to forgive them. Now I'm going to, someday I'll take on 1 John 1 night. You need to go study that for yourself and get it in context. He's not waiting for you to say, Father, I'm so sorry, and then he forgives you. That's, that's not how he works. Confession of sin does not change God. Doesn't change his view towards you. Doesn't change his stance towards you. Doesn't change his position towards you. It may change you in your mind toward him. It may, it may cleanse your conscience. I mean, you know, when your children, when your small children come and they admit they took the cookie out of the jar or they took the money out of your wallet when they get older, it doesn't change your love for them, but it makes them feel better that they got it off of their chest. 
So this one lamb died for the sin of the whole world so that you and I can understand we don't have to be sin conscious anymore. We have no consciousness of sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 says, says this, if one died for all, then all died. Jesus judged every sin at the cross. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus bore the wage for your sin. He died for your sin. And if he died for one, if he died for one, then all died also. 2 Corinthians 5.14, if one died for all, then all died. We all died. We've died our death to sin. You, sin has been judged. There's no more judgment coming on sin from the Father. Now, let me just put something in here. If you rob a bank, you're going to prison. You smoke cigarettes for 50 years, you may get lung cancer. The wages of sin in the natural still has a repercussion, but from the Father's heart to your heart or any eternal standing is not based on your actions or your behavior. Are, are there natural repercussions? Absolutely. You can, pick, you can pick the sin, you just can't pick the kickback from, from the sin, but it has nothing to do with God's relationship to you or your relationship to him. It all is natural causes. Are you following? The wages of sin, not the wages from the Father, the wages of that sin. There is within that sin the seed of death. But the, the death comes from the seed of sin, not from the Father. And nothing that you do or don't do. So the only way that you can live in guilt, the only way that you can live in condemnation, is if you see forgiveness as anything other than an unconditional gift. Or, or if you see forgiveness as something you must do, See, that puts us right back into works. There's no part of a grace culture, there's no part of a grace message that is dependent on what you do. It solely rotates on what he has done as you. Are, are you still with me? So it's, it's a grace gift, and it was secured for every person that has ever lived on the planet. It was secured by Jesus. All right, let's hit another one. Third word is this, it's union, union. So let's look at a little distinction here between religion and a grace culture. The gospel of grace is the revelation that the Father through the Son in the Spirit shares life with you, shares Zoe, show, shares the very life of God himself. He shares it in union with you as one, as you, you as him, he as you. Union Union in a grace culture is very simply the uniting, the blending, the merging of two or more things. The two become one. See, it's, carried, it's, it's illustrated by Paul in a marriage relationship, but it's illustrated by Jesus in the, in the vine and the branch. The vine and the branch are one. There's no distinction. Uh, you can't tell where the, the vine stops and the branch begins. You can't tell where the branch begins and stops and where the vine begins. See, they're, they're so intertwined together that you can say, like Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. In fact, Jesus, Jesus prayed that. In John chapter 17, that, that tremendous prayer that Jesus prayed, let's, let's read that. It's just one verse of scripture, John chapter 17 and verse 21. This is part of the prayer that Jesus prayed. And, 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 and I just wanna give you some scriptures because this thing of union is so important. It's, it's the heart of the gospel, this union, this oneness. In John chapter 17 and verse 21, Jesus prays this. 
He said, Father, that they may be one as you are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Did you get that? That was Jesus praying. Do you think Jesus would pray a prayer that wouldn't come about? Jesus is praying, look, I want them to know that they are one with us. That's the merging and the blending of two or more entities into one. And, he's, and, he, and, he, and he gives a great clue here. And he says that the world may believe that you sent me. So what the greatest testimony I think that we can give by the way that we live, the lifestyle that we exhibit, <clears throat> is by the way that we demonstrate our union with the Father and let other people know that they are also in union with him. Paul told those idol worshipers in Acts chapter 17, he said that it's in him we live and move and have our being. He included the idol worshipers into this union. In John chapter 14, verse 20, Jesus said, In that day you'll know that I'm in the Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you, and we're one together. In Philippians 4, 19, Paul said, My God shall supply all of your needs, all of your need, according to his riches in glory. Just like a heart pumps blood to the entire body. So the Father pumps to you everything that you need because we're in absolute union. Now, if, you, if, 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 you're, if you're feeling any separation, if you're still seeing a God out there that you pray to, that you're trying to get to come here, if you're still spending time in praise and worship to get him to come visit you, if you're, if you're still spending time, pastor, before service, praying that the presence of God would be there, you're not understanding union, brother. You're carrying his presence everywhere you go. What you're lacking maybe is an awareness of it, but that has not changed one iota the fact that his presence is with you because you are in union with him. He does all of the supply. In this union, he supplies everything. And you're just like the branches, you just bear the fruit. How hard does an apple tree have to work to bear apples? It doesn't work at all. All an apple tree does is what an apple tree does. An apple, the branches of an apple tree just stick out there and wait for the trunk to supply to it every nutrient and everything it needs to be to be an apple tree. You never see an apple tree bear peaches, have you? It's because an apple tree doesn't supply to the branches what's needed for peaches. It supplies what it needs for apples. And so the Father supplies to you everything that you need. Paul said, according to his riches, his, his riches, man, he can supply whatever it is that you as a branch need. You need a house, you need a car, you need to, whatever it is, he supplies it. But if you, if you don't feel union, if you don't feel oneness with him, if you feel separation by anything, if you think your behavior, your actions, your attitudes have separated you, you'll never walk in union. And when you don't walk in union, it's hard to experience un unconditional forgiveness. And if you don't experience unconditional forgiveness, you're never going to know what love is without reservation and limitation or qualification. All right, I think I got time to give you one more. It's the word acceptance. Boy, the religion looks at acceptance and grace culture looks at acceptance in an entirely different light. Here's how, here's how uh, religion looks at acceptance. They look at acceptance as an invitation to accept Jesus into your heart as your personal savior. And if you will pray and ask Jesus into your heart as your personal savior, he will accept you. That's religion's view of acceptance. Here's how grace looks at acceptance. Grace would say that the gospel 
is not an invitation to accept Jesus into your heart, but in reality, it's an announcement. It's an announcement, not an invitation. It's an announcement that Jesus has already accepted you into his heart. Do you, do you, see, do you see the difference there? It's, it's, it's our proclamation. So when you, if you go to the jail, if you have a jail ministry or you go to a, you know, a small group and your responsibility is to teach, how about instead of inviting people to accept Jesus, how about if you make an announcement and tell them the good news, the really good news is that Jesus has already accepted you. I never heard a message like that in all my life. I never heard a message of really good news. See, the good news is he's accepted you into his life, into his heart. He's, he's accepted you into his life, and you're living now his life as your life, your life as his life. So there's no invitation to accept. It's already too late. To be honest with you, it's too late to reject the new covenant. He already included you. He already accepted you into it. He accepted all of humanity into it. Religion and grace have a line of distinction. Religion is about all you must do. You must invite him. Grace is all about what he has done for you. Religion basically always has been, still is, religion basically is man's attempt to reach God. Grace is the good news about God's endeavor to reach all of us through Christ. Religion looks to exclude through accepting or not accepting of Jesus, and grace looks to include and bring together. Right, here, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22 says this. Just as all die in Adam, and religion leaves it there. Everybody died in Adam. The rest of verse 22 says, even so, or in the same way, shall all be made alive in Christ. Now, you can make that message a message of exclusion and say, you know, if you're in Adam, then you got to get in Christ. Or you can make that a message of inclusion as Paul meant it by saying, you know what, that, that race died at the cross, Adam's race died at the cross, Jesus went to the cross as a first Adam and arose out of the tomb as the last Adam. And you in him resurrected also. So they might have died in Adam, but now all have been made alive in Christ. All, from the beginning of time to now, all have been made alive in Christ. Nobody's excluded. Nobody's outside the circle. That's the good news, man. That's the gospel. That's what Paul was proclaiming, and church has taken it and has perverted it and, and twisted it around to become a, a religion of works and efforts and striving and trying to please. It's none of that. It's none of that. It's rest. It's relax. It's take a deep breath. Take a chill pill. He's already accepted you. He's already loved you. He's already forgiven you. And do you know what that does? People say, well, you're just letting people live any way they want to. No, I found that when people get a hold of grace, when people get a hold of how much God loves them, irregardless of their response, matter of fact, he doesn't need a response from you for his love to saturate your life. I find that when people get a hold of that uh, unconditional forgiveness, that they're totally forgiven without them asking for it, begging for it, pleading for it. And when they begin to see their life of union as one with the Father, regardless of behavior or actions, that that's what he's done for us. And when they see this thing of acceptance, that it's not about me accepting him, but he's already accepted me, I find people's love for the Father grows exponentially. It, it doesn't turn them out into the world. 
if 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 you see the message that way then you don't understand grace because grace loves you into effortless change matter of fact that's how i see grace i see grace as this divine influence that produces effortless change in him as i simply rest it produces effortless change as i rest in him all the all these points i'm giving you the way that a grace culture takes words like unconditional love unconditional forgiveness union and acceptance and presents them in a way that you know what i'm more i'm already in like flynn but it's a done deal it's our i'm already walking in that perfection now it's a matter of awakening it's a matter of consciousness it's a matter of the eyes of our understanding being enlightened it's a matter of helping people see who they've always been what they've always possessed that's what separates a grace culture from a religious culture and i think that's why it's growing like a tsunami, I said in the earlier, it started like a little drip, man. When I got into this, it was just dripping. I couldn't find anybody else that was believing this or seeing this. Just a very few scattered. Then it became a little trickle and then a, then a stream and then a river. Now it's spread all over. And religion is in a heap of trouble. The organized church is in a heap of trouble because it's either going to turn to the gospel of Paul and the way Paul taught it, get back to radical get back to the roots or it's not it's not going to survive absolutely it's not going to survive all right let me let me let me kind of begin to bring this train into the station i hope you've seen this morning that really grace is the power of the gospel paul said it's the power of god unto salvation i i'm salvation is not one of the 10 words but it should maybe should have made the list because salvation is the word sozo it does not mean a ticket to heaven. It means that gospel is the power unto salvation. The word sozo means wholeness, healing, health, uh, nothing broken, everything's put together. That's what the word sozo is. So here's the thing, guys, and I'm, I'm, I'm concluding. If you remove grace from Paul's message, you don't have any gospel left. There is no gospel outside of that. What people have heard in religion is not Paul's message, not Paul's message at all. In fact, what people have heard for generations, Paul would call another gospel, which is a gospel of works, a gospel of effort, a gospel of you must do. And what they've heard is another Jesus. They've heard a Jesus that failed in his mission. You, you did not hear most of your life about a Jesus, Luke 19.10, that came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's Jesus. What you heard about is a Jesus that failed in his mission. He might be seeking the lost, but he's only going to get to save a few. There's just going to be a few that make it. The vast majority of people are going to burn in hell forever. That's what religion teaches. That's not what grace teaches. Grace teaches Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Problem is the church has heard it so long, and this is what this is really what we're up against. The church has heard another gospel and another Jesus so long that they have now believed the lie and they have thought that what Paul called another gospel and another Jesus is now the gospel and the right Jesus. They've totally abandoned the message. So when, when we come, like at the Digital Cathedral, when those of us that have embraced Paul's teaching on grace, when we begin to teach it, they call it heresy. I've had people say, that's just too good. That's too good to be true. That's what the gospel is, my friend. The gospel is good news that is too good to be true. That's what it is. 
Paul's message is faith apart from works. Paul said this. Paul said what the flesh, what effort, what striving, what discipline couldn't do. And that, that's what the law highlighted. The law showed us we couldn't do it. Paul said what the flesh could not do through its effort, its discipline, and its striving. The Father sent the Son to fulfill in his flesh. He did it by sending his Son. Paul taught that when Jesus said it was finished, that there was nothing more we could add to it. That the work of Jesus was totally finished. Mission accomplished. Done deal. It belongs to everybody. Religion teaches it's finished. What Jesus really meant, that religion would say, it's finished if you believe it. It's finished if you receive it. It's finished if you confess it and speak it with your mouth. And if you don't, then it's really not finished. And he didn't really come to seek and save the lost. He just came to seek the lost, but it's up to the lost to find him. I found the Lord. It's up to us to find him that we can be saved. Do you see the line of distinction? Do you see the difference between what we clung to maybe for a long time? And those of you that are new to the digital cathedral, it's still fresh in your mind. Me, it's just kind of like a memory in the back. And I can't, I look, I, go, I can't believe I believed all that stuff. So crazy, so ridiculous, so separate from what Paul taught. This is the good news. This is the gospel. All right, next Sunday morning, I'm going to pick up words number five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. And I got a little bit I want to add to it. Sunday, Wednesday night, we'll, we'll take this a little bit further. Let me just say again, it's always good to be with you on Sunday morning. I, I enjoy this time together so much. I, I love to go back and read your comments. And uh, you can do two things. Make sure you subscribe to this channel. That way when a video comes out, you'll know it. When a new teaching comes out, you'll know it. Make sure you subscribe. It also positions this teaching on YouTube in a good place. And the second thing is make sure you're there on Wednesday night on Don Keithley Ministry page on Facebook. If you haven't joined it, come over and chain, uh, join. On, it's a private group. If you have friends you want to bring over that are open to the message, bring them over. We'll make sure they get in. Wednesday Night Live, and now we're doing it 7 o'clock Central. We moved it back from 8 until 7. We're doing a little bit hour early for the people on the East Coast. Thank you so much for your love, your support. Thank you for, it's a brand new year. If you want to become a, a monthly partner with me, I would appreciate it. It helps in the expenses and the ministry as it carries forward. I mean, you have a chance to invest in a, in a message that is changing lives, changing the lives of people. It's changed my life. I know it's changed yours. So thank you for your support and your prayers. We'll see you next time at the Digital Cathedral. God bless.